King of glory. All right, well, one of the things that we always try to kind of identify when we look at the Psalms is, you know, what, uh, what is the historical context of it? What was going on uh, in the heart and the mind of the person that wrote the Psalm? And uh, many of them, it's, just, it's absolutely impossible to assign a historical context uh, to some of the Psalms. But this one seems to have a context, most scholars believe, uh, that it has to do with the celebration of bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Shortly after David conquered the city uh, um, of Jerusalem and he took it from the Jebusites. It seems they shouldn't have had it in the first place. Historically, there's a problem with it. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll venture that way a little bit later. The reason that they think that this is from uh, 2 Samuel 6 is mostly really because of verse 7 and verse 9, where David commands the city gates to be opened for the Lord to come in. Uh, he only came in, as it were, uh, when they brought the ark into the city. Uh, all of the times he was just stationed there. Uh, remember, he, he said, I will dwell in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. So uh, this is the only uh, time where it, it is, we would say that the Lord came into Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, also, it's noteworthy that in verse 10, and then in 2 Samuel 6, verse 2, God is called the Lord of hosts in the context of bringing in the ark, into, or bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Uh, so that's kind of interesting as well. So let's, let's get into the text itself. A Psalm of David begins by saying, The earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. All of its fullness. Uh, that is talking about everything that the earth produces and everything the earth possesses. So the earth itself and uh, everything that you find on it, uh, everything that it yields, everything that it produces, um, all of its inhabitants, David says, every bit of it belongs to the Lord. It's his. Now, of course, we as his people, we belong to him in a, a special way, a more intimate, as uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, our soul, our body uh, has been purchased by God. And so through purchase, we're related to him in a different way. It's through that that we're adopted, we're redeemed, we become his in a, uh, in a redemptive sense. But in the general sense, because God is the creator of everything, he owns everything. It's all of his. And, uh, and it's for that reason that God can call all of mankind to repentance. They belong to him. They owe their lives to him, his, uh, their devotion, and all of that. It's all his. And here, I think, in our context, as I think we'll see, is that it's all his to give, and it's his to bless with, but it's also his to take away. As Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So in keeping with the context of the whole psalm, and in order uh, to avoid addressing this statement as a general truth, that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord, David is probably referring to the city of Jerusalem itself and the benefits of the city, more specifically. Generally speaking, of course, it's all true. But the city and all it offered was God's to take away, that is, from the Jebusites, okay, as the celebration 
uh, probably has much to do. And it was God's to give to whomever he chose. And that's exactly what he did. The city itself uh, in you know, all of Israel, uh, if you were to look at all of the cities throughout uh, the borders of Israel, this particular city possessed great benefits for the nation's capital. Okay? Uh, it, it had great military advantages, uh, being in an elevated position. It had its own unique water source, which served Israel, or, uh, Jerusalem very well. How many guys have gone through Hezekiah's tunnel when you, were in, when, when you went there? Yeah. Anybody else? Oh, you, mom, you went. That's right. Did you do the whole thing? Were you, did you feel a little awkward? No, it didn't get, you didn't get claustrophobic. How about you? Not too bad? Okay. Well, originally, the, the, that water system didn't go through Jerusalem. It poured out the side toward the Kidron Valley. But when the Assyrians were coming against Hezekiah, uh, Hezekiah put his engineers to work, and they managed to bring the, the spring and invert it back into the city and then run it down the mountain, then out, so that the city, when they were put under siege, would have a water supply. And uh, so now, today, you can go and see uh, where that water supply begins and ends, but you can also go under the city, and uh, you can spelunk the route of the water and where it comes out. And if you're, if you're not brave enough to do that, I don't know if brave is the right word. I guess if you have claustrophobia, you can't really think about it, but you can do a YouTube tour of Hezekiah's tunnel. Anyway, give it a try. And uh, so it had its own water source. Uh, it's surrounded by fertile valleys. And uh, if you've been to Jerusalem uh, in the spring, you know that the whole area is just magnificent. It's beautiful. You have the Mount of Olives and, and all of that. As we said before, the city was uh, formerly in possession of an idolatrous people called the Jebusites, whom David, of course, conquered. The city is the city, of course, part of it is called the city of David, uh, which David named after he conquered it. And it's from there that he ruled, but it's here specifically that God put his name. Now, his name is associated with all the borders of Israel. But there's something just very special about Jerusalem throughout the scriptures. Uh, if you go there today, um, it's not just the Jews that think that Jerusalem is special. Uh, the Muslims think it's special. The Baha'i think it's special. Uh, the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, all of the Orthodox, the Catholic Church, uh, the, the Christians, uh, even witch doctors. When I was in Jerusalem, you can see every manifestation of every religion there. And there's something about Jerusalem that just draws them in. And uh, in fact, there's even, I mean, Jerusalem can be quite creepy with all of the religious representation there. But something about Jerusalem, um, it's very strange to see some of the things that are there. But the city itself was, has been marked out uh, for a long time by the Lord. We see attention given to this, this hill and its immediate surrounding area as far back as Genesis chapter 14. And then, of course, Genesis chapter 22. It was there that Abraham, on the way back from his battle with the five kingdoms, that he met Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And Melchizedek, interestingly enough, was, the, was formerly the righteous king of Salem. King of Salem. His name means righteous king, but he was the king of Salem, which is the Hebrew word for peace. And Jerusalem, that's what Jerusalem means. It means the city of peace. And it's there that Abraham met with him. Melchizedek was also uh, the priest of God Most High. He was the priest of the God of the Bible. Uh, but he's not affiliated with Abraham 
as far as we know beyond this story. It's very interesting. It's there in the, the meeting that Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham with bread and wine, and he fed him, and then Abraham gave a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek. Now, um, the man and his identity is uh, mysterious, to say the least. Of course, I have my thoughts on who he is, but that's for another time. He's mentioned again in Psalm 110, verse 4, and then also in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. And in those passages, the emphasis is always on his priestly ministry, even though he was also a king. Uh, Of course, Jesus is said to be a priest according to the, uh, the order of Melchizedek. All interesting stuff. I think that stuff about him will unravel in the future, but for now, we're just stuck with the mystery. Yeah. Also, in regard to Jerusalem and on the hill that it sat on, uh, it was in Genesis 22 where Abraham had attempted to offer his son. And the text there is called Mount Moriah, uh, which is either the site where the temple was originally built or the site where Christ was crucified. Now, my hunch, for whatever that is worth, uh, is that Jesus was crucified on the exact site uh, where Isaac was going to be offered. But uh, he was stalled by the Lord. So this mountain and this city uh, was on God's radar, it seems, just for a very long time, uh, way before the pagan Jebusites possessed it. Now, how they came into possession of it after Melchizedek was the king and the the priest of God Most High, we just don't know. Uh, But uh, after he was gone or something, the Jebusites moved in, took the city, and, um, and now God has taken it back and he's established his name there the city where the kings of Judah reigned, where the temple of God was built. It's where God intended to receive the worship of his people Israel. And it's there outside the gate that Jesus was crucified. And it's there across the Kedron Valley that Jesus will return. Seems like a special place to God. Amen. And when Christ returns, all of that religious representation in Jerusalem is going to have a very strange look on its face when the king comes back. Yeah. So, special place. I think, once again, it'll take center stage. On another note, uh, Paul quotes Psalm 24, verse 1, in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, and 28. Interestingly enough, in the context of eating questionable foods, questionable foods, because the earth and all its fullness, that is, what it provides, what it produces, because it belongs to the Lord, Paul says there's no sin in eating any kind of food, at least not for new covenant people, okay? And uh, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33, the problem arises when we offend others by what we eat or we cause others to think that we identify with idols by what we eat. So in the ancient world, uh, if you were to go to the Angora, which was the, the city market, of course, in the pagan cities of the Roman Empire, and you went to the meat market part of the, the Angora, uh, the most of the meat had previously that morning been offered to an idol. And according to the pagan mind, even to the Jewish mind, uh, if you were to buy that meat and eat it, then you would be participating in some kind of veneration, some kind of worship of the idol. Um, the Jews were the same because when they took their, their um, fellowship offerings into the temple, uh, it was, it was, they were basically dining with God in the temple over this meal. And so it was an act of worship 
and fellowship with, with um, their deity. Very interesting. You also know from Daniel chapter 1 that uh, the Daniel was brought to be um, in the king's household uh, with all of these other young men, and they were going to uh, basically try to fatten these kids up. And uh, it says they brought the, the things that had come from the king's delicacies, and Daniel and Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah said, we're not going to eat it. Well, the reason is, is because all meat that went to the king had been first offered to an idol. And, uh, and it's, it's also probable that the meat wasn't, sac- uh, not, um, it wasn't bled out in a kosher manner. And so for that reason, also, the boys wouldn't eat it. It might have also been pork, which regardless, they're not going to touch pork. But uh, it has mostly to do with this issue of idolatry. And so Paul, speaking to the Corinthian culture, the a pagan culture, he says, guys, there's nothing wrong with the food itself because it has come from the Lord. But he says, nothing should be done for yourself. You should always be looking out for your neighbor. So if food offends them uh, by them thinking that you're worshiping an idol or it's in some violation of a ceremonial thing, he says, just avoid it, okay? He says, when you go down to the market, just buy the meat, go home and eat it. Don't ask questions. And if you're at somebody's house, eat what's put in front of you. But if they say to you, oh, that was offered to an idol, then, then Paul says, just politely push it away from yourself and don't eat it, okay? And he says, for conscience sake, not for your sake, but for theirs, because you know that both the idol, the statue, is nothing, and the food belongs to the Lord. But you need to watch out for other people. So anyway, we don't live in a pagan culture, so I don't think you have to worry too much about it. And that's not our primary context. We could spend a few hours, but uh, let's get back to Psalm 24. David asks an interesting question. He says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. It's funny, we talked about swearing Sunday. What did Jesus say? Just don't do it. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So the hill of the Lord, that is his holy place, uh, refers to where the ark itself you know, came to its, its station there. Uh, this particular place, of course, on the mountain, and later when the temple was erected, it's not the place for general admittance. It's just not. It's a sacred, holy place. It's not for the general public. Uh, it was holy ground. Now, when we come to the New Testament, um, once you came to the edge of the outer court, there was a sign there that uh, warned that if any Gentile was to pass beyond it, they would, they would kill them because the ground was sacred. It was holy. It wasn't for general admittance. You had to be a Jew uh, to enter in beyond that point. You remember the last time that Paul came to Jerusalem, uh, he went into the temple, he shaved his head. It appears that he took the oath of a Nazarite. And then as he was coming out, uh, some people uh, that had seen him in Macedonia, they spotted one of these guys with Paul and, and they thought that because he was a Gentile, they thought that he had gone into the temple with Paul. And so they, they caused this riot and, uh, because those people weren't allowed in there. So it's holy ground. It's not just for anybody to go there where God was manifesting himself to this. It was a worship center. It was a place for sacrifice. It's a place where God granted his forgiveness. It was no longer a place for the Jebusites. But the statement here that, you know, there was the person with clean hands, a pure heart, who hadn't lifted their soul to idol, 
nor sworn deceitfully. Uh, it's not to the exclusion of sinners. Because if sinners can't go there, nobody goes there, right? Nobody goes there. Everyone who approaches God, regardless of how spiritual they may be, uh, we know that they're still sinful. They're still broken by sin. And so the difference has to be in the way that a person actually approaches God. That has to be the difference. Okay? His presence, as Isaiah would say, and David, is for the contrite. It, his presence is meant for the, the broken and the repentant, whom God, uh, as Isaiah says, he will never despise them or turn them away. The scriptures tell us clearly that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the, the proud. He pushes them away. I think probably the best story in the scriptures uh, for this is when, you know the story, when the tax collector and the Pharisee, they both go to the temple and they pray. And in Luke 18, 10 through 14, we know that the Pharisee, uh, he took this uh, self-righteous stand before God with his chest out and his head lifted high. He was declaring his own righteousness, his own virtue, while the tax collector, he stood afar off. And his eyes to the ground, he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then it's Jesus' response that is so important. He responds this way. He says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, the statement is interesting because from the eyes of the, the Jewish people in Israel, it was the Pharisee that was justified. And the tax collector was condemned. But Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbled himself, humbles himself will be exalted. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Both men that came to the temple were sinners. But only one of them recognized his sin and his need for God. So it has to be based upon how we approach God. Broken, contrite repentant, apart from which no one can be justified. Yeah, no presumptuous person who lives, we would say, in an active, willful rebellion can approach God without consequence. Uh, the same truth applies to the Lord's table. We talk about this every first Sunday of the month. Uh, Paul was very clear. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 29, he says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, I believe that, you know, in terms of what is most holy, what is most sacred, um, apart from humanity, uh, there was in the Old Testament, there was the Holy of Holies. That was the place. But I believe that something is more holy now, and I believe it's the Lord's table. I believe it because it, of, of what it actually represents. The, the sacrifices in the temple, especially Yom Kippur, pointed forward to Christ. But all of this represents everything that Christ did for us. And God wasn't messing around when he put Christ on the cross for the sins. of. And so how dare us approach even a representation of his body, his blood in an unworthy manner? I think it's the epitome of presumption. And Paul gives this strong warning about this. So anybody that comes to God in a presumptuous manner, there is going to be consequences. There's going to be. In fact, in the text there, he says some people are sick and dying because of this whole issue. Uh, so who knows what the cause of some sickness today is? Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah. I think that, I don't know if it's because we've sort of developed a culture of shame within the church. I, I don't know how to put my finger on it exactly. But, you know, the confession of sin has become um, like kind of taboo. If I confess my sin, it's to reveal weakness to the body of Christ. Uh, it's to maybe show myself as being inferior, uh, showing myself as not being qualified to do ministry, showing myself to whatever. But when we look through the scriptures, it's actually the confession of sin. It's repenting thereof that should be the, the constant habit of the believer. You know, there's, I'm not a, a liturgical guy. <clears throat> I don't like litur- liturgies. Um, some of you are like, what in the world is a liturgy? Uh, a liturgy, liturgy just means order. And it's not because I like disorder. But historically, uh, liturgies uh, dictate uh, a very controlled way that a church service goes. But there's something about some liturgies where there is a time of confession and repentance before the Lord every Lord's Day. And there's this constant reminder in the liturgy that nobody has come here righteous. Nobody has come here above another. But instead, we all come before the throne in need of grace. We all come here with sin to confess, with sin to repent of. And we should all be in the habit of doing that. Otherwise, we really do approach the Lord presumptuously. James tells us, confess your sins to one another. It's a good practice. Uh, If people aren't confessing sin, I think we should just be suspect of them. Yeah. True humility is found in confession. So, yep. What manner will you approach his presence? The one who, well, let's read the text. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So those who approach the Lord in the fashion that David has just talked about will enjoy God's blessing and righteousness. Now, in the Old Covenant, we've talked about this before, blessing was often given materially and not, not simply necessity. Uh, today, when we, uh, we, of course, we mock uh, and deride the prosperity doctrine. But if you look up their arguments for prosperity, do you know where they're getting them from? They're not getting them from the New Testament, primarily. They twist ones in the New Testament to arrive there, but they're taking them from the Old Covenant, promises that were made to Israel. God didn't promise to just meet the needs of Israel. If they were faithful, God would bless them beyond belief, uh, millennial-type blessing. Okay, so when God uh, talks about blessing to the nation of Israel, it's way beyond what they need. Okay, it's health, it's wealth, it's all that stuff. Okay. It's not a new covenant thing, but it definitely is old covenant. It's all embedded in the promises of God to Israel. But the blessings were also spiritual. It wasn't just material stuff. But in the old covenant, both of those were contingent upon obedience. God granted the material and spiritual blessing through uh, faithfulness, through faithfulness. But then there's an interesting statement here. He says, they shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Blessing is what they will receive, plus righteousness. What is the issue of receiving righteousness? How do you even receive righteousness? Isn't righteousness something you do? Isn't righteousness something you become? How do you receive righteousness? How do you do that? How does a man receive righteousness from God? Interesting. This kind of righteousness actually says nothing 
about the subject. The person that receives the righteousness, it's not saying anything about them. It's not about their righteous deeds. It's not what they've done. It's not what they are as a person. Those to whom righteousness is given, uh, no conduct, no deeds, nothing to do with them. It's completely received. In the scriptures, beginning in Genesis chapter 15, we find a righteousness that is given by way of imputation. We might say attribution uh, or accounting. Okay? It's totally different. The Lord said to Abraham, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be, Genesis 15, 5. So in this passage, God is just speaking to Abraham and he's promising him that your descendants will be as uncountable as the stars in space. And then the next passage says this, and he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord and he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Uh, The same word uh, there in the place of accounted could be imputed or attributed or considered. They're all plausible translations of the the Hebrew word, just as they are the Greek word when we come into the New Testament. So Abraham here, he, all he did was he heard the promise of God and he simply believed in the Lord and what the Lord had said and God accounted it to him for righteousness. There's no act of obedience in the text. It's just purely faith. He just believed the Lord and what he said. But I think it has to be pointed out that his faith wasn't, it wasn't fleeting or wavering. He He truly believed what God promised. And it's for that kind of faith that it was attributed to him for righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, Paul picks up on this. And in his uh, teaching on the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of imputed righteousness, speaking to the Romans, he said this about Abraham's faith. He says, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness, Romans 4, 20 through 22. Understand, this is not, uh, this righteousness is not something Abraham became after years and years and years and years of godly living and righteous conduct. In the text, it happened like that, instantly upon believing. This is purely a righteousness that God attributed to Abraham the very moment he believed. It was given to him by imputation through faith. I think this is probably the thing about the doctrine of justification that that Christians have the hardest time with because we see ourselves on a merit kind of basis, the merit plan. You earn it, you get it. Um, But that's not how God works in this context when he gives righteousness. It means that God treated Abraham as if he were righteous, even though he was not actually a righteous person. It means to consider someone a certain way, even though that may not be true about them. How many of you guys would consider yourself righteous when you look at the standard of righteousness found in the scripture? You still ain't there, like my grammar, okay? You're not there. Well, then how do you plan on being saved? How do you plan on being saved? If you're not righteous enough for the standards of heaven, you will be lost forever. So I hope that it's not based upon that because there's no human being that is going to make it in. And that's Paul's argument in Romans 3 and 4. It's not based upon that. As he said to Titus, it's not by works of righteousness that he saved us. According to his mercy, 
You've been saved by grace through faith and that not of works, okay? It's the gift of God. So God considers him to be righteous. Listen to how Paul says it here. He says, but to him who does not work, and in the context he means him who does not work righteousness, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. His faith is imputed to him for righteousness. Romans chapter four, verse five. Paul says God justifies the ungodly because if he doesn't justify the ungodly, he justifies no one, no one, okay? The legal term here in the Greek, dikaiosune, it means uh, to declare righteous. It doesn't mean that they become righteous. It can't mean that anyway. Uh, it means to be declared righteous. And God declares righteous who? The ungodly who has faith in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, the ungodly apart from works of righteousness. So this is not the sinner's righteousness, okay? And neither does it become righteous by means of it being imputed to him. It's all because of faith. And then God treats him as a saint. Isn't that lovely? So Martin Luther, in his um, discussion on the doctrine of justification, he says that when a sinner comes to faith, he is now a sinner saint. He's positionally declared legally righteous before God as if he has never sinned. And then God adopts the sinner into his home, makes him his own. And then he begins to work righteousness into him practically. So we initially, through faith, stand legally righteous before the Father. But we're a mess. And then he, he installs his Holy Spirit into us. And then through the work of sanctification, we then move toward that righteous person who is Jesus Christ. That's the true biblical doctrine in all of this. If you flip it on your, its head, uh, then you're done. You just won't make it, okay? It's impossible. Perfect righteousness must be imputed to us legally, and then God works in us to make us like his son. That is the righteousness that is given. It's very interesting. David says, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Remember, that means, we believe it means pause, okay? So those who may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place, in the immediate context, is those who uh, have received blessings and who have received righteousness. Here, David says it's Jacob. Now, Jacob is, of course, a reference to the nation of Israel living at the time of David when they conquered Jerusalem. Now, when we look over the history of Jacob, do we see a history of righteousness? Good thing it was given, okay? Good thing it was given, given through faith. Now, I, I think it's probably safe to say that it was during David's early reign that, that Israel, Jacob, was at, his, at its best, Okay, now I think that under some of the other kings, they came up out of some of their depravity, but I think this is one of their best times. Okay, David was leading well politically. He was leading well spiritually. Nathan and Gad were faithful prophets during David's reign. Uh, and you notice that they were never prophets of gloom and doom because Israel was better okay, than what they had been in the book of Judges and what they would be in First and Second Kings and even under Solomon. Yeah, during this time, they were greatly blessed in the conquest of the land, and they were reaping God's material blessing, his favor. All right, so the third day song. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord. 
strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So this is kind of repeated again. It comes in pairs in verse 9 and 10. These verses rather, and also 9 and 10. Uh, The first verse calling the gates of the city to open up, receive their king. The second verse answers the question about the identity of the king. Now, it's here that scholars believe that David was referring to this, this entourage, this parade, when the ark was being brought into the city with singing, music, dancing, celebration. Now, the command for these, uh, these massive city gates, the, the doors to the city of Jerusalem, you know, lifting their heads, uh, I think, the, it's, it's, of course, it's, a, it's imagery, it's, it's, it's a figure of speech. But I think what David is saying is he's saying, you know, pay attention the, the king is on his way. Pay attention. Be ready for his entrance. Because the king of glory, as he identifies him, uh, this should be a big deal. Should be a big deal. Uh, which is actually what we see when David brings the ark in in 2 Samuel 6. Uh, all should be watchful. All should be waiting. Everybody should be welcoming so that when he arrives, there's nothing there to hinder him entering the city. It's not fitting for the king to show up and there's nobody around and he's left at the door knocking, okay? That's not a proper uh, welcoming for the, the king. Rather, a messenger should be preceding him. A watchman should be looking for him on the wall. Uh, the inhabitants of the city should be lining the streets. They should be in festive garments. They should be waving palm branches. They should be cheering as the king advances. And those on the wall should be shouting and rejoicing and they should be blowing trumpets. This should be quite an ordeal. When the king of glory comes as the nation's victor, the city should be ready. It should be making some noise. Amen. Yeah, it should be a party. So again, he says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? This is what changes. He says, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. So I want to just look briefly here. Uh, he changes it to uh, the Lord of hosts. Who is the king of glory? This king of glory. He is the Lord of hosts. The phrase almost always, as it does here, means the Lord of angels. The Lord of angels. The Hebrew word for host means uh, like servant or service, which can refer to those who serve even in the priesthood or in hard labor uh, or in a military context. But when it's used in this phrase, It speaks of the angels who serve God in heaven in military fashion, in military fashion. I think there's a song, a Christian song out that calls, uh, he's the God of army angels or something like that. You can tell I listen to a lot of contemporary music. Angel armies, is that what it is? Angel armies, yeah. This host that David is referring to is an army with God as their king and commander. You want to talk about an intimidating force It's this one. When John the Apostle, in his vision in the Revelation, he was observing this host in Revelation 5. He says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Literally, it's myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It's actually an expression. It's not even a real number. It's, it's an expression that means countless myriads. He's, John is saying, I, I saw and heard, but I, I heard them, but I could not see the end of them. The, the, the hosts of heaven just went on and on and on. Imagine the kind of sound that would erupt out of 
uh, that many angels. Yeah, crazy. A multitude that could not be numbered. John was overwhelmed. An army compared to no other. God at their lead. Who is he? He is the Lord of hosts. So what kind of welcome does a city provide a king like this? It's crazy. In 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 15, it gives us the account of what David did when the ark was brought. Let me, as it says in the text, the ark of the Lord of hosts. What he did when they brought him into Jerusalem. It says, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then, after I don't know how many he slaughtered or how long that took, it says, then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. I don't know what that's all about. Only priests should wear those puppies. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. That's pretty cool. Uh, celebrating, was dancing, albeit in a loincloth, sacrifices, worship. Now, I don't mind dancing if you dance at home, okay? Please don't do it here because it'll be embarrassing for you and awkward for us. We'll ask you to leave. If you're in a loincloth, we will call the police, okay? But I think that this whole scene is important. Uh, not necessarily exactly what they did. I mean, neither do I want, you know, trumpets uh, going off, shofars. That's good for another culture. Um, I certainly don't want people dressing down and being nuts other than the, the um, Zuccotti child. He can run around a little bit. But the idea is that uh, in the presence of the Lord, it should be festive. I've told the worship teams, I want, when we people come in, I want our worship to be festive. I don't want to throw a wet blanket on the people who come into worship because I will enter into his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I'll enter his courts with praise. And so when we see the context of worship, it is festive. Okay, it's, it's festive. Now after this, <clears throat> this whole event, it wouldn't be God entering into where the people dwelt. From now on, he's stationed and the people come in to him. And what we discover from David and uh, the rest of the, the, the Old Testament text, David made sure that the walls were lined, that the people were there, that there was worship, there was music, there was festivity. And it wasn't that the temple wasn't a place for confession and repentance. But see, our God <clears throat> isn't like, like some people discipline their kids and the, the discipline and shame goes on for days and days and days. No, the Lord, he, he summons you in He wants you to confess. He wants you to repent. In the Old Testament, they would bring sacrifice. And God says, it's done. Now let's worship. Let's let's have fellowship. Let's let's, let's let this be festive. Okay? I love that. And um, so the the worship context, I believe, should be festive. If you got something going on in your life that is gloom and doom, I don't think it's right for you to come and throw that blanket at everybody else. I just, I don't think it's right. I think there's a context where you should gather those around you that can weep with those who weep. Uh, But as far as the worship context, I think we need to be careful. Come in with joy and gladness and worship our King. So we, of course, I don't believe the Lord joins us. I would join him. And uh, so remember that when you come in for worship, come in here with a festive heart. 
much to be thankful for, much to be grateful for. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. <clears throat> well, Lord, if, um, if nothing in this life goes well, we have always to look to the righteousness that has been given us because it's the ticket to eternity <clears throat> where all of the stuff here, however bad it may be, will, will be left behind and will enter into your presence clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, I believe that that day will be a day of festivity as you welcome your people in your presence. And um, so Lord, I, I pray that you'd encourage us just as David who made preparations for worship. He didn't just randomly make it happen. It was organized. He was intentional. And he even says, even undignified, because he was just so excited to honor God and bring the ark into Jerusalem. Lord, we got a lot to be festive about. I pray that you'd help us in our hearts to see all that's been given to us. And if we don't know, we can always read Ephesians 1. It's all there. As Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Lord bless you guys.